Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, we got another fun show for you today. Our guest is co-founder and CEO of Chipper Cash, an absolute rocket ship African fintech startup that enables free and instant cross-border peer-to-peer money transfers, as well as solutions for businesses and merchant payment processing. In today's episode, we're talking dollars, shillings, and francs. We also chat Joe Montana and the impact Warren Buffett made on a tiny university endowment. We walk through the reality of limited access to easy and seamless money interaction available to many people outside the U.S. and in other developing regions of the world. We chat the road Chipper Cash has taken to develop an easy-to-use P2P money transfer platform in Africa, which has the highest cost of sending money in the world. We get into the thinking behind launching the product and resisting the urge to go 0 to 100 right out of the gate. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Chipper Cash's Ham Serenjogi. Ham, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mabe. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We just tried to do the show, but you were whizzing around the world on a train. Where in quarantine do we find you now? Back at my apartment in Menlo Park. <laughs> this is where I am today. You've made a lot of stops along the way. Uganda, Iowa. How'd, how'd, give me the origin story. How'd you end up in Iowa? I wish the story was as exciting as my brother's because... I went to Grinnell College after my brother went to Grinnell College. And he went to Grinnell College because a friend of his recommended Grinnell as a school that he should consider when he was applying to colleges from Uganda. And he applied. And by the way, that year that he applied happened to be the year, the first year that Grinnell had sent an admission counselor to Uganda. So my brother got with him personally in Uganda and he liked Grinnell and what he was hearing about Grinnell. So he applied and he got in. And the next year around, when it was my turn to apply to schools, my family was keen on me and my brother being in the same place and me coming to the U.S. So I applied to Grinnell as well. And at that point in my academic career, I was in Mombasa, Kenya. I had done my last two years of high school in Mombasa, Kenya, the Akan Academy in Mombasa. So I was applying from Mombasa 
When I got in to Green Island, started in 2012, I was, I was class of 2016. The listeners probably won't know this. You might. Do you know the story behind Grinnell and Warren Buffett and the endowment? Yes, I, 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 I believe I do. It's, it's one of those very interesting stories. Grinnell, I think the college is maybe about 1,500, 1,600 students. So it's tiny in terms of number of students. And it's got an endowment that's massive, almost $2 billion, the endowment. And the story has a huge part of it has to do with Warren Buffett, who was a, uh, a very close friend of Joe Rosenfeld. In fact, Buffett claimed that Rosenfeld was one of his most important mentors. In many ways, Buffett joining the Grinnell board was because Rosenfeld asked him and he did it for Rosenfeld. But, you know, there's also the Intel connection, which finally Grinnell was one of the seed investors in Intel because Bob Noyce, the founder of Intel, uh, went to Grinnell. He's an alarm of the college. When he went out to start the company, he was able to convince Grinnell to invest in his startup. And they did very well. And like you've rightly mentioned, if that kept that investment, that I've done even better. <laughs> no one is complaining. <laughs> Always obvious in hindsight. After Iowa, you left the cornfields, headed west to Bay Area. Is that right? Join the tech world? That's correct. My Silicon Valley experience started actually in my first year of college. Did an internship out here in the Bay Area. And it was at this clean energy accelerator. And that was exciting. And for me, that was my first time definitely coming to California, but just being in Silicon Valley. And I had been, you know, fascinated with the whole idea of technology being a driver of economic growth and changing the world for the better. My dad did IT and he did computer science in college. He has an IT farm. And for me, growing up, I was always fascinated by IT and what, what it can do to change the world. So coming to Silicon Valley as a freshman in college for my summer was an exciting experience. And for me, I fell in love with the place, its willingness to support all sorts of ideas and a community where nothing is looked down as crazy or, or, or a weird idea. Everything is encouraged. People are risk takers. You know, everyone's trying to do something exciting. So being in that space for, for the summer was great for me as a 21. Wait, no, I think I was 20 at that time. Yeah, as a 20-year-old. After that, I was committed that, you know, this is what I wanted to do, you know, be part of tech. And so I got an internship at Facebook. Again, my summer, one of my college summers, I think I was a junior at the time. That was my first foray into big tech, working in big tech. And after I graduated, I, I worked at Facebook for two years. But that was actually in Dublin, Ireland. I, I moved to, to Europe for two years. Yeah. I worked at the Irish headquarters, which was a fun experience as well. But then Two years after that, I moved back to the Bay Area to start Chipper. Despite all of its flaws, there's really no place like Silicon Valley. The energy and just excitement and vibe is unlike any other. Dublin also is booming now. I was over there, was it last year? And man, the, the crane indicator, I think I must have, there must have been 40 cranes downtown. But all right, okay, back to San Fran. What was the inspiration for Chipper, your, your startup? This would have been, what, 2018, 2017? 2018. By the way, speaking of Dublin, you know what they call Dublin? It's called Silicon Docks. The, the area where most tech companies are based in Dublin is this place called Grand Canal by the water. And so they call Dublin, that part of Dublin, it's called Silicon Docks, sort of not to Silicon Valley. But I digress. They call my neighborhood down here Silicon Beach up in Venice and Santa Monica. I'm a little further south. But all right, back to 2018. Really, this story kind of started actually in college because my co-founder, who I met in college, is also from Africa. He's born and bred in Ghana. I'm born and bred in Uganda. I'm not sure if I mentioned that earlier. We met in college. It was actually, he was two years older than me. So he was a junior when I was a freshman. We hit it off in terms of our how, how aligned we were in the sense that we strongly believe that 
growing up in Africa, we had all these experiences and these insights around some of the problems that still faced a lot of Africans. And having the privilege of being trained and educated and exposed to, to life in the West, we felt gave us a really great opportunity to sort of marry those two things, bridge those two worlds and build a solution that could impact a lot of people at scale. And so we tinkered with a few projects while in college. And after we graduated, we, you know, we stayed in touch and kept thinking about what areas can we make an impact in. And payments within Africa was a clear opportunity to, to go and take a stab at, at doing something there. No one had really done anything around payments within Africa. Most of the focus had really just been about around remittances. You know, we were quite aligned in that sense. And in 2018, that's when I made the move and said, all right, this is important enough. And uh, I think the time is, is right. felt that I'd, I'd spent at, at Facebook, I, I felt would have in many ways been too costly in terms of the missing the opportunity that we thought existed in the, in, in the market at the time. 2018 is when I moved back to the barrier. That's when we really put our efforts to into full force and launched the company. It's a pretty ambitious undertaking for two guys to say, hey, look, let's tackle payments for an entire continent. What were sort of the first steps to building this? And also, I would love to hear a little more about the current state of payments was like you would think that around the world payments would be somewhat standardized and that many of these big players like the Venmos and Squares and all the big guys would be there but doesn't seem like that was the case yeah it wasn't the case and I'll get to that in a minute but you are 100% correct in saying that it was definitely a big it was quite audacious for two 20 year old first-time founders you know African guys coming out of Silicon Valley and trying to do something and I think for us, like people say ignorance is bliss and statement is incredibly true. For us, you know, we were just obsessed with what we saw as the opportunity. And we didn't really spend too much time worrying about all the incredible obstacles that were in front of us. I mean, we had to figure out a lot of things. You know, immigration was one of those things. Both myself and my co-founder at the time were out of the country before we started Chippers. We had to figure out how do we get our immigration in order and, you know, could move back to the U.S. and work getting the company off the ground, you know, trying to raise money. So there was a number of really large obstacles. In hindsight, if you looked at objectively, you'd think that you'd be incredibly stupid and crazy to try and do this. You know, like I said, to us, it was important enough that we wanted to, to take a stab at it. And we felt quite strongly that we had a working solution. And to your question around sort of the landscape at the time, I think, again, in many ways, what just was unbelievable to us was that we take so many things for granted here, people who live in, in the US or in Western Europe or pretty much in the West, around how easy it is to you know interact with your money. You go into a, a coffee shop and you can, can swipe your card, you can use Apple Pay, you go get lunch somewhere and you know you can vend more friend after you flip you know check. It's just really easy. And you, you take for granted how seamless that is. A lot of people in the world still don't have that level of convenience around how they interact with their money. In Africa it's still in many ways in the early stages of that space evolving. Mobile money, which was launched with M-Pesa in Kenya, has done tremendous work in, in lifting people out of poverty and just improving the social economic order of things, in, in particularly in Kenya and Eastern Africa, how accessible it made formal financial services. And that's just kind of getting from zero to one, you know, from people being able to actually digitally send money from one person to another and not having to store, you know, hordes of cash in their, under their beds or in, in physical cash and being able to digitize that. But then how do you get from one to 10? How do you then enable people to not just be able to store money digitally and send it to a few people, but be able to send it across borders 
be able to make online payments, be able to access other instruments like savings or investments and whatnot. And to us, that's what we looked at and said, wow, in 2020 or 2018 at the time in San Francisco is so much farther ahead than the rest of the world that sometimes you forget and take things for granted. But that represents the opportunity that lies in being a part of the solution for a lot of people who don't have access to these formal services. And that really was the driving force behind Chipper. Tell me a little bit about what were the first steps? Was it just two guys starting to code out of a bedroom in San Fran? I mean, that seems pretty ambitious. What was the original vision? This wasn't that long ago, two years. You know, is it in line with the same idea you have today? Absolutely. It's still the same. The vision has always been to make it incredibly easy, cost-efficient for people in Africa to send money across borders. Africa has the highest cost of sending money in the world. It's more expensive to send money in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And so that's a huge barrier. It's, you know, incredibly fragmented. There's, you know, different solutions in different countries that all don't speak with each other in terms of, you know, interoperability. So just being able to say, we're building a platform that can let someone in Nigeria send money to someone in another country very easily. That vision still remains true today. But, you know, first steps, I think, as with anything, is just trying to learn more, you know, understand exactly what you're getting into. So, you know, whenever I'd go back home for the holidays, you know, I'd spend a lot of time just talking to people and seeing what people on the ground were using and people's expectations and where the space was at the time. Because I think the things that make any company being launched more likely to succeed versus fail goes beyond just technical ability of the founders or the idea and the strength of the idea. But it also involves, I think, being in the right time and at the right place. And I think a lot of things have to be right in, in so many ways for a solution to have a chance to succeed. You know, if you look at any industry or any company that's scaled quite well, Jeff Bezos says all the time, if you look at Amazon, but he, he was able to launch Amazon at that time because there was a bunch of other infrastructure that was laid before Amazon that Amazon could leverage, whether it was, you know, the shipping industry, the mail industry in the US or the internet being available or payments being at a point where people could pay online. You know, those are important things that had to happen and be in that place for Amazon to succeed. If you if you tried to launch Amazon in 1969, it wouldn't have been successful because you, you wouldn't have had, you know, the advancements in payments and the internet and, and shipping to support that sort of thing. And I think the same thing is true for um, for any industry, and particularly for us. Um, you know, the, the the industry being at a point where we could, you know, build on top of existing solutions that weren't there 10, 20 years ago has a strong impact on if we'll be able to scale something, you know, in a meaningfully successful way or not. What was sort of the offering when you guys rolled it out? Walk us through kind of how you envisioned it working. Imagine how you use your Venmo today or your PayPal. In addition to Venmo just working in the U.S., try to imagine if it actually worked across the world, if you could Venmo someone in Europe or someone in Asia. That's what Chipper is to people in, in sub-Saharan Africa. That's the intention of what we want it to be. It's a platform. It's a, it's a P2P app where you can connect various payment methods. It could be a bank account. It could be a mobile money account. And you can use that to credit and debit your Chipper wallet. And when the money is in your Chipper wallet, you can send it to someone else pretty easily, the same way you'd send a text or the same way people in, in the US would use Venmo or, or PayPal. And again, one of the things I just want to emphasize is I think exposure is powerful because 
it kind of shows you in many ways things that you take for granted. Those two years I spent in, in Dublin, in, in Europe, I remember so many times telling people if we'd go out for drinks or whatever, and, you know, afterwards, you know, whoever picked up the tab, want to pay them. And I would say, you know, do you have something like Venmo? And the concept of an app that did peer-to-peer payments was so foreign to them. In, in Europe, you have to go into, your, 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 typically your bank has an app that you use to send to someone else, but you have to get their bank account number first, then you can send it to them via your bank app. It's not as seamless as Venmo is. Even, and that's Europe, right? But even in Europe, the idea of peer-to-peer payments hasn't quite caught on the way it has in, in, in America. That exposure sort of puts in perspective how sometimes, you know, we assume that because something works very easily where we are, that that's the case for everyone else in the world. And so building the product initially to be able to just do that very basic peer-to-peer setting of money for us was our key objective and remains our key objective. That's, that's an important problem for us to solve. And we knew how broad it was just because of, 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 of our own life experiences growing up in Africa and seeing how many people had to pay really high fees or you know, stand in very long lines to send money to another country. What was the major hurdles in building it? Why was it so hard? Do you have, is it regulatory? Is it courting with all the various financial intermediaries? Is it banking related? Kind of walk us through all the challenges and struggles. I know we only have an hour. Why is this so hard? Why was this an unsolved problem in 2018? I think the main ones are, and I think at a, at a macro level, it's mostly around the ecosystem and how the ecosystem plays a really big part in different solutions scaling well or not. And it's very hard for a company to be both vertical and horizontal. And what I mean by that is in every industry, most companies often have to work with another partner to support a part of their business that they shouldn't spend time building out. For example, but the reason why Stripe is powerful is because it takes away the need for every e-commerce company to build a payments system in their product. And so that company can just focus on what they do well, which is, you know, if it's making shoes or if it's food delivery or whatever it might be. If a company has to focus on what its core product is and then also build out everything else it needs to rely on, whether it's payments or infrastructure, for example, again, AWS is another example, right? A lot of internet companies today don't have to worry about how do I build out all these servers and all the, you know, the software that will run on those machines and redundancies and all those things because Amazon can do that for you. And all you have to do is focus on building your product and leveraging the existing scale of AWS. But if you had to do both those things, if you had to build your product and then also build infrastructure to support the back end, it just makes you that less efficient, you know, makes it that more difficult because then you have a lot less resources to do what really you want to do. And I think the ecosystem, in many ways, being very young, I think is probably the biggest, I think, hurdle and remains the biggest hurdle today for a lot of people that are building exciting solutions, whether it's in Africa or Southeast Asia or many of these emerging markets. It's that you have to build your product, but then you have to build everything else that supports your product. Even if the solutions that might support you in that regard, many of them are still very, you know, very young and aren't mature enough yet that they can scale as fast as you want them to scale and things break very frequently and you have to have even more redundancies than you need to have. And so those things all require more time, more capital. They distract from what you actually want to focus on, which is your product, and altogether make the whole, you know, endeavor that much more difficult. So I think that still remains to be the biggest, the biggest piece 
to, I think, emerging markets as a whole, eventually being able to have robust ecosystems that make scaling products very efficient. You have every other problem that comes with running a business, which is, you know, how do you actually get your first customers? You know, how do you, you know, raise money? How do you actually build technology that can scale? You know, how do you put together a team that can, you know, can do what you need, you know, what you need to get done? And so all those things, in addition to everything I mentioned about the ecosystem. Good. I want to hear about all those things. It's funny as you talk about that because it resonates. I mean, we've been using Stripe, Idea Farm Research Service. It's got to be five, six, seven years now. Same thing. It's just like, why would you ever want to be involved in something that it just creates, it makes life so much easier. All right. So let's go back to payments. All right. So problem, you know, it's expensive. You couldn't really do cross-border. You mentioned a lot of Africa. It's mobile. Um, phones is, is a main way that people want to exchange across borders. How did those first transactions happen? Was it through app-based? And kind of talk about how you did eventual launch and rollout. First, V1 of our product was actually web-based. We had a very basic web, essentially, interface. And the reason why we did it that way is because we, at the time, we didn't have... <laughs> We had too many things to worry about, and we, had, we didn't have the time and ability to focus on building the native apps, iOS and Android. So a web solution was the silver bullet at the time in inverted commas because it wasn't really a solution. But it allowed us to put out a product out there that early adopters could use. We didn't have to worry about building iOS or Android or supporting native apps at the time. So it was a very, very primitive version of what the product is today, which is much more complicated and sophisticated. The earliest people were, you know, again, it was very much word of mouth, you know, talk to a few friends, my family, talk to a few other people, and just really collecting feedback and saying, you know, what do people like about this? What do they not like about this? Is it actually solving a problem that we think it should be solving? And those initial, you know, 10, 20, 30, maybe even 100 users were incredibly informative in us being able to say, these are the areas that we need to double down on as far as making, reducing pain points for people. And this is where there's going to be a bit of a challenge in terms of whether it's relying on a third-party partner or or just us having to figure out a solution for that particular problem. But the first, let's say, couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, was it was a very primitive web-based solution. And then we made a big push and launched the, the Android app because Android is by far the most prevalent operating system in, in Africa. We got the app out there. That made a huge difference in terms of how seamless it was for people to use the product and how much more they actually enjoyed the experience. So we're able to get higher quality feedback. It helped growth a little bit. And then we started to focus a little bit on getting some press in local media outlets and trying to increase our visibility, kind of take it a a step at a time in that sense. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of first-time founders like ourselves would make most times is trying to just get from zero to 100. There's actually a very important process of going from zero to one first because you get some very high quality feedback. And if you can get the first you know, couple hundred people very happy with your product, then they'll bring on the rest. But if you just rush and try to get as many as possible and it's a bad experience, then you put yourself in a hole that you don't want to, you know, to have to walk yourself out of. What was the initial rollout? Was it in Uganda? Yes, Uganda was the first market we launched in. A few weeks after that, we launched in, maybe about a month or so after that, we launched in Kenya. Those were the first two markets we launched in 2018. But Uganda was the first. That was, I remember the the day we actually put the app out there and started to see initial reactions from people. And I remember having a very lengthy discussion 
slash debate with my co-founder at the time. His viewpoint at the time was that we need to highlight that this is a beta because the app was still very buggy and was still trying to figure out a lot of things. So he wanted to add beta to in the app store. And I said, if you put beta, no one's going to use it because <laughs> the trust element that, uh, that gets, gets very hard to, to overcome at that point. And we went back and forth around, should we put beta or not? And, and then eventually I was able to convince him and we didn't put beta out there and uh, tried to get some really high quality feedback. Those initial people were so important to us. Every user today is very important to us, but we'd obsess, microphone and I were quite obsessed with giving people a very good experience. That's one thing that we, we never compromise on. I would literally physically call every single user we had and say, hey, we noticed you opened the app and you did this, but you didn't complete the action. What, did something happen? Did it break? Stay up late at night, phone calls with users and trying to see you know, what was happening and just making sure that every single user at the time knew that we were serious about this, but then also that we would listen to them if they didn't like something about the product. That was a very interesting experience. You know, in many ways, it allowed us to hear more in terms of what people actually liked and didn't like. That's an important part of the whole development cycle of anything. Those were exciting times in, in many ways. Part of me actually misses that direct connection to people sometimes, to users sometimes. But, you know, when you scale, which every business wants, there's some things that you can't keep scaling. So, Talk to me a little bit about how it works, because I imagine the complexity of launching an app where you're saying you're doing this cross countries where you're exchanging shillings for francs for all sorts of different things, dollars. I have no idea. How challenging was that once you, okay, said we have the peer-to-peer, did the merchant side come later? What was kind of the expansion? Now, so this would have been what? Launch would have been 2018, 2019? Yeah, this is late 2018. Late 2018. And then what was kind of the, the timeline after that? And so really pretty much from as of September, October 2018 to December was just trying to ramp up in Uganda and Kenya. I know, you know, all the initial bugs that were getting caught, build that really important trust with the early adopters. That was the focus at that point. It was just putting out a bunch of fires, really. And then 2019 was really when we put the hammer down on scale and growth. And, we, you know, we essentially said, all right, we need to essentially move 10 times as faster as we were before. One of the powerful things that we also learned at the time was that Ultimately, if you don't, if if you're unable to communicate to people what you're solving, it doesn't matter how well your solution is. And I think we focused a lot on building the most slick product and the best solution in our minds. But a lot of our users, because again, I, I mentioned that we take things for granted. A lot of our users didn't actually weren't familiar with the whole idea of a P2P app where they could connect a payment method that they could credit and debit their wallets with, and there was an educational curve that we had to take users through. Again, those are the learnings that you get, you know, in that initial zero to one phase. And so for us, 2019 really went, that's when we started to Ghana, to Rwanda, Tanzania. That year was really when we essentially took what we had learned in late 2018 and applied that at scale and focused on taking that same approach, iterative learning approach, and then scaling it out as fast as we could. And so 2019 was a big year for us as far as growth went. It came from a couple of thousand users in January 2019. You know, 2019 with just under 700,000 users. That was a big year for us. Again, the focus there was, you know, listening to what people are saying, being, you know, mindful that innovation sometimes goes both ways, right? If you solve a problem, you have to also be able to communicate that problem. Otherwise, you haven't really solved the problem. 
And then obviously, you know, the other aspects of scaling anything that come along with scaling, which is the infrastructure to support that growth, the ecosystem, managing all the different partners that we're working with to support the different aspects that we needed. You know, looking back at how that whole evolution has happened, the ecosystem in many ways is much more advanced today than it was when it started. And I think in large part to people like us who've had to push it forward and, you know, require our partners to, you know, be that much more reliable and the the stresses and growth puts on a product that ultimately make it better. So you guys started to find that little product market fit. The big advantage, of course, that you guys have on the peer-to-peer was cost. A lot of the incumbents and legacy offerings were super expensive and still are. Where did the fundraising start to happen? Is that 2019? And tell us about how you met Joe Montana. I had been fundraising from the very beginning. Again, this is where one of those classic ignorance is bliss scenarios because I thought that, you know, with a really nice and well put together deck, you know, I could uh, go out and speak to investors and, you know, get them to put money into our company before launching a product and speaking to people that had very little exposure to the space that we're going to be tackling, which is sub-Saharan Africa. That experience was incredibly difficult. Raising money initially is hard for anyone as a first-time founder. Doing it in Silicon Valley, an African guy, having to also teach people about what space you're in just compounds the difficulty. I keep telling my co-founder, one thing that entirely grateful for is that he's hands down the best engineer that I know. And he's able to build this incredibly great products, which make my job that much easier when I go out and pitch to investors because you know we have a really powerful product to show for it. But at that time, we had no product yet. It was just the deck and the idea. That was a brutal process. I mean, the rejections that we got were, I can't even count them and, you know, and it was, it was countless. And, you know, we're burning through our savings because we're bootstrapped at that point. Essentially, we have a clock, a deadline in terms of how much, how far our capital can go that we're living off of. And at that time, I'm staying in my co-founder's apartment in San Francisco. And I think it got to some, a point where we're about maybe a month or so away from being able to make rent, being able to not make rent. Those things just make you incredibly stressed out and you know, you have to compartmentalize that part. You have to focus on the product you're trying to build. You have to try to find the initial users. Well, in our scenario, we have to also figure out our, our immigration. And, you know, those things just mixed together made it incredibly difficult. But eventually, I was able to meet Shil, who was our uh, first investor. And Shil was literally the first money in. That literally took us from the edge, from the cliff, to being able to have the capital to just, you know, have a roof over our, our heads and actually be able to support, you know, the growth that we're seeing at that time, which is, you know, a couple thousand users, but that's more than our budgets could support. And we know we're depleted on our savings. That's late 2018. 2019 comes around. We mentioned Joe Montana. One of his associates reached out to me to set up a meeting and we spoke with him. You know, he was excited about the product and he was, you know, like ourselves, quite aware that there's a ton of growth that's going to come from emerging markets like Africa. And he wanted to be able to support and participate in that. And so our initial round was led by Destiny's Capital. Dan Kimberling is a good friend of Shields and Shields introduced us. And, you know, I had some really great meetings with Dan. We met maybe two or three times before he made the decision to invest. So, you know, after we started to grow, get some traction, that aspect of my job, which is fundraising, became significantly easier. Still very hard, but significantly easier. You know, it's so funny you mentioned the entrepreneur story that I imagine so many people on this podcast listening can resonate with. I mean, we had the same experience 
for years with my company where it's almost like the Wile E. Coyote Roadrunner. You're out over the cliff, just like pedaling in, in the middle of air. And you just, you have this vision and idea, but cash is just slowly depleting. What was the major response from most of the people that were the no's in the funding community? Was it hey, you can't compete with the M-Pesas or, or Square or Venmo is just going to dominate or it's just too hard. Like what, what were the main reasons people uh, gave the no? Literally all the above and more. And I think one of the things I also want to clarify is that we actually, and I told this to investors all the time, we're not trying to compete with M-Pesa. You know, I, I keep painting the analogy that M-Pesa is to us what Wells Fargo and Bank of America are to Venmo. PayPal and Square Cash. Those products sit on top of Bank of America and the banking infrastructure in America. We similarly sit on top of the infrastructure that Mobile Money um, has laid in, in Eastern Africa. So we're not trying to compete with them. And in fact, their growth drives our growth and vice versa. So more than anything, we work very closely together. But just being able to explain that and clarify that to people and say, there's a very specific need we're solving here and trying to show them how large it was was a very difficult battle not just for investors in silicon valley even investors in africa you know i was getting very similar you know responses to on both sides of the aisle in 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 silicon valley though i think the most common one was you know i don't know africa blah 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 i don't know if there's a big opportunity there you know the few who you know maybe i got a second meeting with or didn't say no the first time thought that they could get a massive discount on our valuation because just because we're doing a company in Africa. And there's just a lot of things that you have to sort of walk your way through to explain things to investors in a way that makes sense to them, but also doesn't sort of paint you as being unrealistic and naive and being untrue to reason. And that was particularly true for us because uh, in many ways, well, let's want to say for to fundraise, in many ways, what I was presenting was theoretical because it was just a deck. We hadn't built the product yet. So it was highly subjective in, in many ways. I think as we scaled and grew, we were able to show traction and you know speak more to the it was it was tough to have to not just show people the opportunity, but we've watched this go rocket ship over the past 12, 18 months. After you had the first round of funding, what was the moment when you kind of started to feel, okay, wait, this is starting to catch on? Was there a moment where you felt this is happening, this is working? We've always been optimistic about what we're building. I've never been more optimistic now, given how well everything has gone and everything has exceeded our wildest expectations. We were so adamant and so committed in our belief that this was a powerful product. But to answer your question around, you know, when you have that moment of, okay, it's real now, I think it's probably when you close your first round and then you actually have that added responsibility of managing some, you know, money money that isn't just yours, but that represents someone else taking a bet on you, that added responsibility sets in more as the company scales, as you have more employees, as you have more capital, as the stakes get higher. I keep telling this to the team as well. And you know, when we closed our last round, I sent an, an email to all our employees and essentially saying that, you know, this is great and everything, but we still have such a long way to go. You know, we're not there yet by a long shot. It's important to maintain that perspective because it humbles you. And it's true. We have so much more to do. It's, a, it's great to be proud of what you've accomplished you know, to a certain point. But it's important to remember that 
this is a journey of a thousand miles. We know we've done 1% of the first mile. There's a lot more to do and uh, we need to keep our heads down and keep executing. Walk us a little forward closer to the present. So 2019, you're into what, seven countries. Tell me a little bit about the uh, merchant offering because that kind of plays into a little more of the actual business model and uh, where you're going to see a majority of revenues. Is that right? I uh, don't have a comment on the revenue projections, obviously, <laughs> but uh, typically speaking about that publicly. But what I'm say is that, yeah, the merchant side of, of our operations is key revenue driver for us going forward over the long term. And really how that works is that because we have a really fast growing and large base of peer-to-peer users, a lot of merchants want to tap into that base, collect payments for those people. So we're able to build a product called Chipper Checkout, which allows merchants to, you know, with one link, send it to other people, and those people can use that link to pay them. And on those merchant transactions, uh, the plan is to monetize those uh, and make a small fee of those. That, that we, we have a lot of excitement for that business, scaling that as we keep growing our peer-to-peer offering as well. As kind of 2019 ended, you guys found yourself just rocking and rolling, I guess the Series A maybe around then, I think closed a couple, but talk to me a little bit about your got all the challenges of running a business and all of a sudden you got a pandemic thrown in. What's what's 2020 been like for you guys and how's that impacted or, you know, changed how you guys do business? So we just closed our Series A, which was a few weeks ago, but you're right, we've done three rounds total in the last 12 months. The first round was a seed round, then we did a seed extension, which is the second round, and then the Series A now. 2020, <laughs> it's been an eventful year, to say the least. And I think every, every business out there is, has essentially you know, had the ground under their feet shifted in some way. A lot of CEOs have had to make very tough decisions around laying off people and you know, adjusting operations to, to survive in this new world. We were mindful about that in our company internally around how does this change what our plans are? How does it affect everything else that we're trying to do? But for us, the first thing that we focused on the leadership team was to take care of our employees. You know, we were very early on making everyone work from home, obviously encourage people not to travel at all for work, definitely, but even for personal reasons, just out of, you know, being safe. And then we also supported our employees financially. We, we moved up payroll about a week early in many markets, in many of our offices around the world, so people could get their money early, essentially be able to stock up ahead of time and just be more prepared. We've also offered additional financial assistance to employees to be able to better support their families and, and loved ones and essentially have our employee community be a source of support for everyone and people know that we are part of their family as well and you know we are here to support them on the long term, not just, you know, this month or this quarter. And the idea is that, you know, you don't want people to be worried about everything else in life when they're at work because they're that less productive in their jobs. And, and our, our goal is not just to maximize productivity. It's to actually have people professionally grow in their careers as well while they're with us. In, in, our, in our monthly all hands, I, a couple of months ago, again, earlier, you know, in this crisis, I made a pledge to all employees that we won't be laying off anyone. Uh, and so people also had that added job security. And so for us, taking care of the team was a huge, doing that right was important to us. And then after that, being mindful of the macroeconomic effects and saying, how does this affect our users? 
and how best can we you know stay true to our mission and our vision in this new world you know being able to listen to what people are saying see how our product is either being more important to them being a place where they can still count on for a great service playing a more crucial role in their lives was something that we saw definitely happen as this crisis deepened because a lot of people had that much more need to either support a loved one somewhere or uh, receive money from someone else. It became more important to us to make sure that you know, we are serving our users in the most reliable way. You know, if we go down for even a few minutes, you know, negatively affect someone in a very meaningful way. This is not just about metrics and, and hitting goals internally. It's, it's actually about you know, positively impacting people's lives. And if you don't show up or you don't do a good job, then you have a negative impact on people's lives. And this is too important not to get right. You know, it, it gave us that much more responsibility and I think also empathy to make sure that we're doing everything we could in our power to be the best version of ourselves for our users as well. What has been some of the surprises, if there have been any, or use cases that people, you know, have been using the app over the past couple of years? It like what you expected, where people are just exchanging money in the same way they would through Venmo? Or is it the concept of remittances been um, interesting or a surprise to you guys? I think at a high level, you know, what I can say is that it's mostly been in many ways what we expected, which is people supporting loved ones or family members, you know, back home or, or wherever they they may be. And I think what, if anything, that we've seen happen more of is that uh, frequency or need in terms of, for example, whenever sometimes, let's say, one of our Heroku goes down or something happens and, you know, the app is, 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 let's say, you know, offline for, you know, five minutes or so because some dinos have to be reset or something. You typically have a, a flood of people write in and say, hey, I can't use the app, blah, blah, blah. You know, when is it going to be back online? When COVID happened, the intensity of those sorts of, you know, feedback requests was interesting to see because it came from, hey, when will it be, you know, when will this be resolved to, I need this resolved right now. And that was pretty much across the board. It was one of those things that kind of, to us indicated that it, the stakes are higher for people as well in this post-COVID world um, in that typically the types of transactions people are making are more around things that are necessary and not so much around things that are, you know, wants or less necessary. And so being able to do that is of more importance. You know, if, like I said, if I'm sending money to my friend to, to split the, 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 the bill for dinner, if that is a day late or a couple of minutes late because Venmo isn't working, that's fine. But if I need to send money to my friend because they need to support a relative, you know, crunch, then I really need it to work right, you know, right that moment. I think seeing more of that um, has probably been one of the indications to us that the bar has been raised on, on us in that regard. I'm incredibly proud of, of our team and the, our engineering team has done a really good job to make sure that you know, in any given scenario, we have a ton of redundancies that we, we're almost never down, you know, primarily because how much more important we are now to people, you know, in this post-COVID world than you know, any time before. I feel like a lot of people's concerns when they hear African bank fintech transactions, one of the first things that will come to mind, listeners, is all the Nigerian princes. How hard is an issue of fraud for you guys? I know you made a recent hire in that space is that been a big challenge something you kind of went into it with eyes wide open what's what's that been like fraud is any fintech company in the world that's an area you have to invest in and, and you're right i think you're referencing our chief compliance officer who joined us recently uh, about two months ago 
and we know we're, we're investing a ton, you know, in our compliance efforts. I mean, we invest millions of dollars every year in compliance and uh, AML work, AML being a team money laundering work and uh, making sure that our platform is, is as safe as it can be. Now, there's also a misconception, I think, that I, <laughs> is important to address, which is there are people who try to scam others. And, you know, the Nigerian, for instance, is one is a classic example that everyone knows of. But that is so incorrect as far as being a reflection of most people in Nigeria or in Africa are doing with money. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, empathy is really important. And we speak about empathy a ton in our company and encourage everyone company to be as empathetic as they can to each other and also to people that we work with. Most nine out of 10 people who are, you know, doing a financial transaction in Nigeria or anywhere in Africa are not trying to scam anyone. Uh, and the 10th, which might be, you know, suspicious or fraudulent, oftentimes does not involve a Nigerian prince trying to, <laughs> try to scam someone. So my point there is to say that I don't think fraud is any more prevalent in Nigeria as a function of society than it is in other parts of the world or in the US, for example. But the unique challenges around how you combat fraud and how you build a safe platform that will vary from region to region. And so your approach to building solutions that can mitigate that risk will look different you know, in Nigeria or in Ghana or in, in Kenya than they might look in you know, Southeast Asia or in Europe or in the US. One of the things that we're very happy about is that, and I can say this very proudly, and you know, we, we, we take the utmost care for how we protect users in terms of how transparent our platform is, the safeguards in place that people that don't get duped, the work we do in verifying whoever's on the transaction is actually who they say they are, so whoever's on the platform is actually who they say they are. We have, I think, a very good record in that sense. And it can be one thing for me to just say this. And, you know, you'd say, all right, you know, Han is biased. But the space we're in is a space where if you don't do a good job, if your platform isn't safe, people won't use you. You know, it, it, just, it just breaks. In many ways, every time someone uses a transaction, it's also a vote of confidence. You know, a platform like ours, which grows predominantly via referrals, it's someone else who tells someone else about us. The minute those referrals become bad and people say, oh, actually, don't use these guys. These guys are fake. It'll all come crashing down. That is a, an unbiased, I think, indicator of the fact that we have taken great care to make sure that it's a very safe platform and that people actually have a great experience using it. And it shows in how people refer the product to other people in their, in their lives or in their communities and our general brand, I think, image on the continent and beyond. As we find ourselves in the summer of 2020, you guys have had quite a run. You've launched the app. It's gaining traction. You've done a few rounds of financing. What does the future look like? We turn our eyes to the horizon, 2020, 2021, 2023, five. What's your vision for the future? We have an exciting roadmap. And I think you might know about this more than most because of your proximity to the company and, and, and your access to, to some of our internal comms that I, I send out to our investors. What I'd say publicly is that we have a very exciting roadmap. We are building this company for the long term. This year is going to be a consequential year for us on so many levels. And we have some pretty exciting stuff coming out. You know, to us, we are staying true to our objective, which is improving the state of financial services to people living in Africa and beyond. There's a lot of work that still remains to be done, but we know we are on our way. Every milestone we keep reaching, you know, we get more support from our community, our users, our investor base, uh, and we become that much stronger as a company to actually fulfill our objectives, which are 
meaningfully changing the way people move and interact with their money in Africa. So, you know, to us, the future is scaling to more people, making our platform redundant and as reliable as possible, continue to listen to our users and meet them where they are, which is providing the services that they want and making sure that we're actually solving problems that are meaningful to them and not just problems that we think are meaningful to them. That's probably as much as I can say without giving away a lot of the exciting stuff that's coming up. There's some really exciting stuff that we're working on right now, and I can't wait to have it all roll out. Do you think that there is a possibility that Chipper would ever expand beyond the shores of the continent? I think anything is possible. And this has been a lot of fun. What's been the most memorable moment of your tenure at Chipper? Is there anything that comes to mind, good, bad, in between, anything that's seared into your memory? On that spectrum of absolutely freaking out, nervous breakdown, complete joy and bliss, you kind of go through that entire spectrum as you know, if you as most founders do. And I you know, I like I say, I think the best is yet to come for us. I could be more optimistic. We still have a long way to go. So, you know, we don't fool ourselves in any way that we're there yet or that, you know, we're done or we can take a break now. But, you know, most memorable moment, that's a tough one. There's several. You know, for me, you know, the first term sheet that uh, I received, you know, that's pretty memorable. First time we had over 100 users, <laughs> that, that was pretty memorable. All in your family? <laughs> I have a very large family, but uh, I don't think it's that large. <laughs> Maybe 50 were my family. <laughs> I'm joking. I'd have to think more about which one is the most memorable, but there's been several. I mean, Major and I, my co-founder, we sometimes just talk and appreciate everything that's happened for us to get to this point. I mean, we've had, like I said, incredible highs and incredible lows along the way. Uh, and I think there'll be more of those. They'll change in terms of what might be stressful at the time, but what was stressful two years ago. There's ups and downs in any journey, and I think this is no different. And the overall, I think we're the luckiest people in the world. We're doing exactly what we love. We're living our dream. You know, we get to impact people's lives positively while we do it, and that's inc- incredibly re- rewarding. I think we've been incredibly fortunate to be where we are today in any scenario, regardless of factors might work against us or for us. No one can complain and say that things haven't gone well. We're incredibly grateful for that. Where do people go if they want to find out more about your company, what you guys are up to, follow along? What's the best places? Well, I think listening to this podcast is a great start. <laughs> but our website has a ton of information, chippercash.com. We always make sure that uh, providing as much information about who we are and where we're going on, on that online presence. Obviously, our Twitter social media team does a great job engaging with our users and having that be a, a source of interaction with our users and providing information. So it's at Chipper Cash app. That's on Twitter and Instagram as well. I still do reach out to many of you know the very early users and once in a while just you know catch up with them and see you know how things are going. So for those people who have my number, you know you can always text me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it. Pam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is a little fun. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>